You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hey all, Rick here. We are at the end of season two. And when we started this podcast back in April, season one, episode one, we had a vague idea about creating a new podcast designed from the perspective of the cybersecurity C-suite. Not a technical show and not a news show, but a discussion of topics pitched at the executive level. In that way, everybody in the chain, from the newbies to the technicians and analysts, to the graybeards and to the management, and finally to the C-suite, can learn and consider the main cybersecurity issues of the day and what might be confronting us in the very near future. Here we are at the end of September, the end of season two, 17 shows in, and I think we started to find the edges of what the show is and what it might become. Since April, we have covered some 50 subjects, everything from what exactly are the cybersecurity first principle considerations when you are building an InfoSec program, to what were my favorite Saturday morning cartoons when I was a kid. For season two, we also created the virtual hash table and invited some 12 C-suite level thought leaders to discuss a particular subject. The idea was that you wouldn't just get my thoughts on what was going on, but that we would gather opinions across the spectrum. And we wouldn't always agree. One of my favorite parts of the show this season was when Helen Patton, the Ohio State CISO, and I were discussing zero trust. I told her that I thought it was imperative that we identify the material information in our organization the data that, if it would get out to the public, or if some hacker destroyed it, would have a negative material effect to our company, and then limit access to that data only to the employees who absolutely need access to it and no others. Helen laughed out loud at that. I think that's a nice idea with no practical reality. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's always good to get outside of your own echo chamber for a cold dose of reality. And it just goes to show you, there isn't one way to do things. There are many paths that you might take to accomplish your goals. And speaking of goals, this podcast, if it has been about anything, it has been about establishing with some clarity just what those goals are. Out of all the shows and with all of the hash table discussions, there have been no disagreement about what we as a community are trying to do. As you have heard me say on the podcast many times, we are all trying to reduce the probability of material impact to our organization due to a cyber event. Four strategies have emerged in those discussions that will help us do that. Resilience, zero trust, intrusion kill chain prevention, and risk assessment. The first three are levers to pull to reduce the probability. The last one, risk assessment, is about how we measure that probability before, during, and after 
We install the people, process, and technology to implement them. As I said, our discussions at the hash table saw no disagreements about any of that. Where there was some variance were in the questions about how we pursued them and in what priority. It is clear that you don't pursue each of those strategies with equal amounts of resources and effort and vigor. You pick the ones first that will have the greatest impact. For season two, we pick four common tactical schemes that most network defenders use to support those big strategies in some way, running security operations centers or SOCs, operationalizing incident management, how to think about data loss protection and prevention, the current state of identity management, and finally, are red team, blue team operations essential? My name is Rick Howard. You are listening to CSO Perspectives, my podcast about the ideas, strategies, and technologies that senior security executives wrestle with on a daily basis. On this show, I present the highlight reel for season two. Let's start with the SOC. We learned in these two episodes that the history and evolution of this function in the early days seemed to be making a lot of progress. In the aftermath of the 1988 Morris worm, the first big internet worm, DARPA established the first Computer Emergency Response Team Coordination Center at Carnegie Mellon University in response. That team helped the Air Force build their first CERT in 1993, and the other services followed suit soon thereafter. By 1998, the U.S. military had established the Joint Task Force Computer Network Defense, or JTFC&D. And in 1999, President Clinton established the ISAC infrastructure. Finally, by the mid-2000s, mature commercial and academic organizations were building their own SOCs. But that is where it kind of stagnated. Most SOCs today look surprisingly like they did back in the 2000s, like the network defender community found the blueprint of the SOC stuck in amber and could never change it or improve it. There are some exceptions for sure, but the bulk of them look basically like this. A room filled with big monitors at the front, analysts in three tiers watching alerts fly by the screen and resolving them as best they can. Well-resourced SOCs interact with their own intelligence teams and their own incident response teams. Some of them manage penetration tests and red team operations. Some are trying to automate their tier one and tier two tasks with SIMS and other SOAR technology but most don't have the authority to make changes in the security stack in real time across all of their data islands and to orchestrate all of the best cybersecurity strategies like resilience and zero trust, intrusion kill chain prevention, and risk assessment. If they do them at all, they have to coordinate with other groups to get things done. So, most CISOs do not have complete centralized authority over their organization within their SOCs. What that means is that the skill set for SOC analysts has definitely evolved from being purely technical back in the day to being a mix of technical and people skills. We needed people skills to coordinate with the outside organizations in order to get things done. Don Welch, the CIO of Penn State, explained it this way. So when I first came in, we, we had a very technical team um, that was focused on the alerts and, and on the technology and on our security stack. And now we have far more people who spend their time talking to IT people around the university, helping them solve their problems, helping them understand, you know, why we need to do this, figuring out, especially for us, where we have research projects, where we have, um, you know, microscopes, uh, you know, that are running MS-DOS because, 
these microscopes don't wear out and you know so forth and all the the different kinds of technology that we have around the university one size doesn't fit all and the people who go out and help people understand how to uh you know fix their own problem and that that's you know so there's customer service skills leadership skills people skills organizational skills as well as technology The idea of incident response was born way back in 1989 with the release of the now famous cybersecurity canon Hall of Fame book, The Cuckoo's Egg, where Dr. Cliff Stoll practically single-handedly invented the practice while at the same time eradicating the first ever public cyber espionage campaign run by the Russians using East German hacker mercenaries to penetrate U.S. government systems. In these two episodes, we also learned that incident response is much more than just a technical forensics investigation designed to detect and eradicate cyber adversaries within your network. The more serious these incidents get, the higher up the chain you have to go to coordinate the event across the non-security teams, like the chief information officer, the chief legal officer, the chief marketing officer, and the chief risk officer. If the event is impactful enough, then you have to get the senior leadership team involved, like the CEO and the CFO, And you might have to coordinate outside contractors, like a commercial incident response team and a commercial PR firm. We learned from good examples of incident response, like how the Zoom CEO handled security concerns about his product when the pandemic started, and how even when there are still lingering security issues, the network defender community has generally given the company a pass because they feel like the company has a handle on it. And we learned from a bad example, probably the worst example of incident response, The OPM data breach, where at every turn, before, during, and after, the OPM leadership didn't even have a plan and tried their best to cover their backside instead of trying to protect the organization. The result was arguably the worst U.S. counterintelligence failure in the history of the country. But in terms of running our own incident response, we learned from our hash table discussions that the best place to start is with some standard frameworks. Here is Steve Winterfeld, the Akamai's advisory CISO. Another great framework is the MITRE ATT&CK framework, which is great way to look at all the threat vectors and start quantifying how well you're able to do it. So typically we think about, you know, the red team will come in, they'll pick some um, adversarial techniques from the common body of knowledge, they'll test those, they'll go in, um, they'll execute some payload on the endpoint, You'll be able to detect, did the alert go out? Did the alert hit your SIM from the SIM? Was it seen in the SOC? Did your SOC react to it? And was there remediation? So you can do that kind of entire life cycle uh, using the MITRE ATT&CK framework. And then the last is, and this may be more tactical, uh, the SANS incident response, the personal, the prepare, identify, contain, eradicate, recover, and lessons learned. We also learned that maybe the most difficult thing to manage is the escalation path of notification. Here's Jerry Archer, the CSO of Sally May. So we get it as part of the cyber team. The cyber team says, okay, we have an event. When the event occurs and it's declared to be an event, we bring together what's called an incident management office. The incident management office is composed of the vice president of information, of asset protection, so the, the guy who is our physical security VP. It brings together the president of the bank, and it brings together legal. Now, at a very minimum, those three constituents, 
look at the event and decide what's next. So if there needs to be communications, if there needs to be additional legal support, then we assemble response teams as a result of the incident, whatever it might be, right? So the IMO is the next step. Now the IMO, which again, remember is the vice, is the vice president of asset protection and the bank president and legal, they then will make a determination if we have an incident, right? If it's an incident, then we bring together what's called the executive crisis management team. And that's basically all the C-level executives in the corporation. Then we, they're briefed and, they, and, and the IMO will typically make recommendations on what the next steps are. And then the executives will receive those recommendations, make whatever comments they want to make and approve or reject or however it would roll out with the, as being the ultimate authority, right? So uh, that could include everything about briefing regulators when we do that and that sort of thing. So that three levels decides, you know, sort of manages the incidents going forward. We further learned that there is a standard model to use in framing your escalation path. It is called the DACI model, and it helps us manage large groups of people across an organization to accomplish a single task. DACI is a decision-making framework developed by the Intuit company as an improvement to the older RACI model spelled with an R. The DACI acronym spells out the framework. D, the driver, the person who organizes the potential decisions. A, the approver, the person who makes the final call on any decisions. C, the contributors, the people who do the legwork. I, the informed, the people who might be impacted by the decisions being made. We learned that CISOs are using DACI and RACI for incident management and for managing red team, blue team operations. Here's Jerry again. In any project, you, you form a project and you create a DACI model. There's a driver. There's a person who's running the project. There's approvers who approve the project and, and elements of the project. Contributors who are providing the input to, to solve the problem, the arms and legs, the real workers who are doing the real work. And then there's those people who are informed. They, they simply get information. So that's what we call a DACI model. We also learned that we can pull a legal lever to protect the communications inside the company during a crisis. It is called a Covell Agreement. This framework makes the communications during these different functions privileged and protected from any future lawsuit. Here's Steve Winterfeld again. The legal team can have a Covell Agreement with uh, vendors and that means that if it's done properly, anything discovered and discussed is privileged and cannot be discovered during subsequent legal action. And that means basically that the legal team has hired your forensics team. And the forensics team is supporting the lawyer, not the incident response commander. What we learned from all of this is that it is one thing to have your plan on paper, but it is quite another to actually implement it. And you don't want your executive suite to encounter these situations for the first time during a real-world crisis. You want them to be familiar with the kinds of decisions they will have to make before the place is actually set on fire in a real crisis. The only way to do that is to practice or to conduct exercises. Here's Jerry again. We do two exercises a year. And we run through, uh, we, we literally bring every C-level executive into the room uh, along with the supporting cast. And we will run through, uh, on twice a year basis, we will run through uh, scenarios that are brought in from the outside. So we usually hire a third party uh, to come in and pose uh, an incident. And then we will, at a tabletop level, 
deal with that. So uh, we do that twice a year so that everybody's up to speed. They're all, you know, they're all looking at their playbooks uh, so that if there are any gaps in their playbooks, they'll update their playbooks. So you're talking about, you know, people who change. Uh, anybody that takes in, you know, comes into the role has that playbook right away. So he knows what he's responsible for doing. When we got to DLP, I discovered some confusion in the industry about what the acronym stands for. Is it data loss prevention or data loss protection? Or do they both mean the same thing? Don Campelli, the VP of Global Security and CISO for Rockwell Automation, said there was absolutely two meanings. We use our DLP technology in both modes. So we use it in one way for our highest risk users. So um, users that have access to our crown jewels, we use DLP in prevent mode, which means um, if you, for instance, if you work on our source code, any data that comes out of the source code repository, you cannot put onto a USB drive, you cannot email it out of the network, you cannot move it to cloud. It's totally prevent. But for everyone else in the company, it's protect. In other words, for her material data, the data that would impact the business significantly if it ever got out, all of that falls under a program of prevention with stringent controls designed to prohibit that information from leaving its hermetically sealed infrastructure. But when it comes to the other DLP, the data loss protection, it is more of a process improvement mentality. Nick Gilbert is the Chief Information Security Officer for Cherokee Nation Businesses. He views that function to be less about cybersecurity fundamentals and more about best practices for data in general, not necessarily preventing material impact to the company. I've worked for several organizations where I've, I've deployed DLP. I think DLP, if looked at in the right way, way is is a, is a valuable tool to the overall enterprise not just for uh, from a data protection perspective but but also from a process improvement perspective so what i found um, is that 90 90 plus percent of the uh, anomalies that occur through your dlp detection software or, or process program strategy whatever you want to call it is you are usually operational improvements for these kinds of protection programs, you would be thinking in terms of best practices for, you know, like paper and removable digital media and electronic versions of data as they moved out of controlled areas. You should be thinking about destruction of that material when they are no longer needed, labeling of that material somehow, and probably the most important, encrypting the data or the digital version of that data at rest and in transit. Which brings us back to the difference between data loss prevention and data loss protection. Tom Quinn is the Chief Information Security Officer at T. Rowe Price and has been with the firm for over four years. When I sat him down at the hash table, he was quick to point out that vendor solutions are pretty good for a general purpose data loss protection program. But for data loss prevention, you need humans in the loop deciding what is material and what isn't. I think that the concept of materiality is tough for computers to divine. So now you need humans, right, to make decisions about materiality, which is fine, right? I think humans probably, an informed human probably really does understand materiality. You also, I believe, you also need to invest in humans who will know what that is. And that goes to the heart of data management, data inventory, data tagging, and alike. 
the concept of materiality, I think, is important. But I think the challenge may be, you know, that there's a lot of work in designing systems, um, processes, and technology to um, to really enable those things to happen in a sustaining way. The new shiny object on the horizon for DLP operations is something called deception networks. Now, the idea of deception networks has been around since the early 2000s in the form of honeypots and honey nets. But just recently, vendors have made it extremely easy to deploy these things compared to what we were doing back in the day. But still, the care and feeding of them is still pretty tough, especially if your InfoSec organization is starving for resources. For them, deploying deception technology is probably not the first thing that you reach for if you haven't already deployed stable zero trust, intrusion kill chain prevention, and resilient strategies. Deception networks aren't going to help you there. Here's Gary McCallum, the USAA CISO, giving his view. I would say for organizations that have a very mature control environment, right, multi-layered defense in depth, and it's it's strong, you know, I, I think that deception can be, uh, I think, an extra arrow in the quiver. I wouldn't over-index on that, right, depending on where you're at as an organization, but it's something I think that's could be legitimate in a, in a high-risk organization that is, you know, definitely under attack, and we could come up with some scenarios um, where there are high-risk organizations because of the type of work that they do where that might be helpful. But when you realize, like most security technologies, you know, there's very little true plug-and-play, right? It all requires implementation, tuning, optimization, right, care and feeding, right? And like anything else, if you can invest that kind of time into it, right, it's an arrow in the quiver, but it's not a silver bullet, right? When we looked at identity management systems, we discovered they all should have some basic capabilities like federation, extra authentication, privileged access management, and the ability to manage your employee's identity throughout its life cycle. In a federated model, you get this kind of transitive property of trust. If the University of Michigan trusts Ohio State University and Ohio State University trusts their own CISO, then the University of Michigan trusts her too. Here's Helen again, the Ohio State University CISO. One of the things I really like about being in higher ed, there's always been a need for researchers from different institutions to be able to collaborate. So we've always had federated identity. Well, not always. We've worked early on having federated identity management options. So, for example, if if I'm visiting my friends at the University of Michigan, and yes, they are my friends at the University of Michigan, I can go up there and log in with my OSU credentials and get access to the things that those credentials allow me to have on the U of M campus. For extra authentication, what we are talking about is the ability to require additional and perhaps higher order authentication if certain conditions are met. For example, if the CEO is trying to access the mergers and acquisitions database, we might want to require not only her user ID and password that she uses to hit the internal website, but also maybe some form of two-factor authentication too, because the M&A database is sensitive and we want to make sure that the CEO is who she really says she is. Here is Rick Doughton, the Carolina Complete Health CISO, with his view. So what you're describing is risk, we, we call risk-based authentication meaning like if you're coming from a different machine than before or you're accessing something that's especially sensitive or something that you haven't accessed in a while, they may prompt something else. For privileged access management, it is analogous to the pseudo command for the Unix wizard sysadmins out there. You don't run as root all day long. What you do is run as a normal user until you need to change something with root privileges. 
At the command line, you type in sudo, S-U-D-O, which means switch user to root and do something. Once you were done with the task, you quit sudo. That is what privileged access management is on a much smaller scale. Here is Helen Patton again. Privileged account management is simply the management of accounts that provide someone with elevated access within a system. So typically, for example, a network administrator has privileged levels of access to the network. It's not just that they can log on to the network with their device like any old end user. They can make changes to the configuration of a network or that kind of thing, right? So the accounts that a, a network administrator would use to do those privileged activities are often different than the accounts they would use as a general Joshmo user to access the network. The last feature that is essential to the identity management system is the ability to manage your identities throughout the life cycle of their need, from onboarding to lateral job movement to promotions to leaving the company. What you're trying to reduce is entitlement accumulation. Here is Susie Smybert, the CISO of Finning. You have someone that starts a front desk and then they move into a support role and then accounting and HR and they move around, but they retain and accumulate entitlement as they move through the organization with their tenure. And that is especially prevalent with senior leaders because to develop senior leaders, generally they get move around organization. So you have senior leaders with access across a slew of business function just because they've been, you know, developed and grown through the organization. And that's a, a high risk if that identity was to be compromised. The concept of red teaming has been around since at least the 1500s. It hit the IT space in the form of penetration testing in the 1960s and 1970s, just as mainframe computers started to become useful for governments and the commercial space. Ever since, we have used penetration tests to reduce the attack surface of our computers and networks in a zero-trust kind of way. In the early 2000s, the idea of a combined red team-blue team exercise, or purple team exercise if you prefer, became popular to test our defenses against known adversary attack campaigns in an intrusion kill chain prevention kind of way. This had the added benefits of exercising our incident response teams and accelerating the training of our newbie and mid-tier analysts in the SOC. Here is Rick Doten again, the CISO of Carolina Complete Health. It depends on how mature you are. If you're less mature and you're still like working on trying, you know, you're understaffed, you're underutilized, you know, you don't have the instrumentation, then it's not, it, it, don't worry about that. <laughs> you know, try to get the fundamentals done well. But when you're at the point where you have a good program and you're trying to make sure it's always improving, then do it. And then that helps you find the things that you are maybe missing or didn't think about or maybe didn't have coverage on. But, you know, if you're, you know, and in the principal idea of like, if you're starting off the fundamentals, you know, asset configuration management, you know, I have, you know, I'm watching things, I have controls for this thing, I'm using multi-factor, blah, blah, blah. As you're kind of building up on that, um, you know, just vulnerability testing, which is just kind of like making sure that everything, you, you, you see all the surface area is good enough. But when you get to the point where I think I have a good program and I want to now kind of make it better, that's where they fit in. And there you have it. In season two, we covered security operations centers, incident management, data loss protection and prevention programs, identity management systems, and finally, red team, blue team operations. My big takeaway from this season is that your mileage may vary on any one of these things. 
It is up to you to decide which one to tackle first in order to reduce the probability of material impact due to a cyber event, or which one will have the greatest impact to that goal. It is really a matter of risk priorities and setting the direction for the organization in the most advantageous way. But hey, that's why we pay you all the big bucks to figure out that priority so that your InfoSec team can implement that plan. Which brings us to the end of season two. Like I said at the top of the show, we have covered some 50 subjects and I have learned a lot and I hope you have too. Season three starts on 19 October. We are just beginning work on that season now. But if you have ideas about what you would like me to cover next season, send them my way. You can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. In the meantime, I will see you in a few weeks. CyberWire's CSO Perspectives is edited by John Petrick and executive produced by Peter Kilpie. Our theme song is by Blue Dot Sessions, remixed by the insanely talented Elliot Peltzman, who also does the show's mixing, sound design, and original score. And I am Rick Howard. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this preview of CSO Perspectives, be sure to subscribe to CyberWire Pro and get access to the rest of this episode, as well as all past seasons of CSO Perspectives ad-free. And you all know I love getting rid of the ads. Visit thecyberwire.com slash CSO Pro. That's thecyberwire.com slash CSO Pro to explore the many benefits of CyberWire Pro and to subscribe.